sometimes one wonders, you know, why did I sign up for this? <laughs> so I'll, I'll try to give you lots of reasons why today. The practice really invites us into looking at a quite a crucial question in our life. And this crucial question is what brings contentment in life and what brings suffering or a sense of being discontent? You know, what, what are the elements that bring either of these two states of being? When we look at our lives and when we look at our hearts, we may find that our hearts are quite conditioned to try to seek happiness or contentment in a variety of different experiences or a variety of different things or people or situations that really can't offer what we want, that really can't offer a sense of lasting happiness. Certainly may offer some degree of happiness, certainly. But in terms of lasting happiness, not so. And we find ourselves seeking outward. We find that the conditioning is to try to find happiness outside of ourselves and to constantly be seeking outside of ourselves for some kind of lasting peace. Practice is very much a reorientation. And that reorientation has to do with, instead of looking outwardly for contentment, to look inside, to really begin to look very deeply inside ourselves. Our human life, our life, each one of our lives contains these seeds for awakening. And so all of our practice has to do with cultivating those seeds and encouraging those seeds, allowing those seeds to bloom, to mature into full awakening. Observing beyond appearances, looking more deeply than relying on the usual assumptions we may make about our lives and about what brings peace and what brings angst. So there are a number of different models that the Buddha used, being quite an enormously skillful teacher. He had a lot of different models. All of them basically point to the same thing, point to waking up. But the different models come in handy in terms of looking at our practice. So as I talk, just to see if you can um, use this particular model, and I'll be working with the model tonight of the five powers of heart, five powers of mind. See if you can look at your day to day or reflect on your life um, to see if any of this really resonates with you so that you can really link it to what's being said. It's much more useful in that way. So the five powers, and of course these are five inner powers that we allow to be cultivated during our practice, include faith, effort, concentration, mindfulness, and wisdom. And what I'd like to do tonight is to speak about each one of these powers individually, to define each one of these powers, and then also to speak about how they need to be balanced and what happens when they're not balanced and how we can 
each look at our own practice to see where the balance needs to be. It's kind of out of balance. And then as well to speak about how they connect, how they each one leads into the other in quite an elegant way. So to begin with the first, the first of course is faith or confidence or a sense of trust in oneself in the practice. And very much this doesn't have to do with a trust or a faith that comes out of having to believe anything or having to pick up a new belief system that maybe we're trying to let go of an old belief system. And so thinking that practice has to do with picking up a new belief system, not so. Really, the faith or the trust that comes out of practice is not based on belief at all. It's really very much and only based actually on our own experience. Experience is very, very much valued on this path of waking up. And so really, the faith that really sustains us or the self-confidence that really sustains us is the confidence that comes out of our own experience, born out of our own experience. As I said this morning, the Buddha said, Ehipasiko, come and see. Now, it's, it's such a great invitation. Come and see. Yeah. Don't, don't believe me. Uh, don't take this on faith. Don't um, make it into a, a thing you know, that you have to be locked into or imprisoned by. But come and see. See if it works for you. And if it works for you, really use it. Use it fully and completely because it worked for me. So really offering us his own practice, the Buddha's own practice. So, you know, it is very much not a command. You must come and see. (laughs) Which sometimes one feels the first day of practice. You must pay attention. You must not move. You must be with the breath. Um, But it's not a command. It's really only an invitation to try it out for yourself and to see if it works. However, there does need to be a leap of faith, uh, an initial leap of faith that gets us here, and sometimes from moment to moment a bit of a leap of faith when we've forgotten what we know, when we do wonder why we're here and what we're doing and what is the practice anyway. At those times, there does need to be uh, a leap of faith, which means the risk of being confident taking a risk of trusting, maybe reflecting on the fact that what we've tried so far hasn't worked so well. And maybe however much practice we've had, we do have a little bit of faith already. And maybe if we've practiced for many years, we have quite a bit more faith. And yet there still is doubt as well. So during those times, to really take that leap of faith, over and over again, inspiring oneself to take that leap of faith. I'm in such an interesting situation because I, I know a lot of you over the years, but I also teach in a community where I've known people for a long time. So I've seen them as very, very young yogis. And over the years, I've seen them mature in practice. And um, it's really interesting. I, I kind of wish I had like baby pictures 
or, you know, an, an album of, of how the mind used to be and how it is now. <laughs> like an internal album, an internal baby picture album of um, kind of just patterns and habits that, that were really strong in the beginning and then just seeing people over the years and seeing it melt away, seeing the change. And sometimes noticing that the person that I'm noticing changing doesn't see it yet in themselves, is not aware yet of how much change has indeed happened. Confidence can be really slow in building. And so I think it it behooves us to be aware of how far we've come. Also, confidence has to do with the confidence that there is indeed a path. You know, that there is something more than the material world that actually is wonderful and beneficial and is not just a void. To, to have confidence in the path. At some point, if we can have confidence in the path and enough confidence to at least begin to walk on it, the path does become visible. In the beginning, we talk path, 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 and we think, well, where is it? You know, I'd love to walk on this path. I'd love to take the next step. But how? How to take the next step? And as we practice, we do see the path more clearly. It is outlined more clearly. And it's not outlined in the books. It's really outlined in our hearts. We really see what we need to do, and then we just need to do it. And so life itself is simplified. The practice itself is clarified, and our lives are so much less complex. The next of the powers of heart is that of effort. Nisargadatta Maharaj, a yogi in India who died but lived for a really long time. He used to say that all one needs to do in practice is to be earnest. It doesn't matter what technique one uses. A technique is just a technique. It's only a technique. And of course, one has to get behind that technique for it to be useful. But to not think that the technique is the practice, to not think that a technique has to do with freedom. So really just remembering that if we can get behind our practice, if we can get behind whatever technique we're using, that earnestness is, is loved and embraced by the universe. You know, the, the universe loves earnestness. And so if we can really just summon up what is already inside of each one of us, you know, for us to be here and not survive the day, we all have enough earnestness. So really just to take refuge in that earnestness, to remember that each one of us is doing our best. I have a teacher who works with a number of different techniques. And every time, he's very quite skilled in working with a number of different techniques. And when he gives a retreat, he'll give one particular technique and he'll say, this is the only technique that you need. This is all. This is it. Let go of everything else. They're all done. Just use this technique, and you'll wake up. And so everybody practice, practice, practice. But then you find out that if you do another retreat with him, 
you know, some months down the line. They'll have a totally different technique, radically different technique, totally in opposition to the first technique. Yeah? Whereas the first one was maybe receptive and soft, the second one will be, um, you know, kind of more forceful and driving. You know, and I'll say, this is the way, you know, soft, receptive. No, you need drive, you need push. You know? <laughs> so, and then just getting behind that. But, you know, it really, if you, if you practice long enough with him, you realize that it doesn't matter. It's really the, the earnestness that matters. And it's having some degree of confidence in the technique that you're using. I think that is really important. Yeah. Sometimes we have quite generic instructions. Um, in other words, everybody do this or everybody do that. Everybody be with the breath, for instance. Well, for some people, the breath is fantastic. It's great. It's liberating to recognize that one can be with the breathing. For other people, uh, the breath is not such a great place to be. And so one has to find another area to be with, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I'm just using the breath as an example, but whatever it might be, to, to have some trust and comfort and confidence in one's technique, to see if we can get behind the method, is quite important. And sometimes we aren't so comfortable with our method, and then we need to seek out guidance and find a way to get behind our method, you know, to choose a method that is really best for us in an individual way. Michael and I have both practiced in the Thai forest tradition quite a bit. And the orientation in the Thai forest tradition is whatever works is what you want to do. You know, that it's, it's um, the development of calm and out of that calm, inquiring into how things are and deepening into wisdom. So whatever is going to bring about calm, as long as it's wholesome, one wants to do. It's very individualistic rather than a cookie-cutter kind of approach. So we can, you know, we can look inside ourselves and do this for ourselves to find out what is best for us. Effort, as I said last night, is not so much a willfulness as it is a willingness to be with our experience as it is from moment to moment. It's a willingness to turn away from habits, from the habits of mind that we're so familiar with, the willingness to turn away from fantasizing and obsessing and planning and worrying and the different habits of mind that we get engaged in, and to turn towards the present moment, the willingness to let go of the old and to turn towards the new, to let go and to be in the present moment with what's occurring. To, in a sense, turn away from instinct. Our instinct, of course, is to cling to that which is pleasant and to push away that which is uncomfortable. When we do this, we live in a very narrow and tight world. When we're open to both, aware of pleasure without clinging, aware and making room for pain without strengthening it by pushing it away, our world becomes that much larger. There's more spaciousness inside. The effort is really something that um, we want to examine so that we can see what our leanings are 
And we all have different styles of effort. And some of us make a big effort to conserve our energy. And, you know, it's only our first day, but a few days from now, you know, I have to get that nap at this particular time. We lie down, we're not tired, but I have to get that nap. Um, I have to do this, I have to do that. You know, kind of, kind of conserving our energy, being overly protective with ourselves. And we could put a little bit more effort in. Others of us get extraordinarily tight and tense because our style, our leaning, is to push and to strive and to put out so much um, exertion that we exhaust ourselves. And that's not balanced. So we really want to try to find a balanced effort for ourselves, looking at what our leaning might be and then going a little bit in the opposite direction. Through effort, we discover an inner energy that we may not have known that we had. We find ourselves reconnecting with our lives. We find ourselves reconnecting with a dimension of life that is underneath the dimension of thought and dialogue and chatter and commenting. We find that we can tap into a huge, vast sense of energy that perhaps is undiscovered as of yet. But as we're willing to bring an effort into each moment, to turn towards the present moment, we do tap into this this energy within. We do find that we actually have more energy than we thought we had. There's an example of the Buddha, which is that if you you throw a stick in the river, if it doesn't go up on either side of the banks of the river, eventually it will make itself to the sea. So this is kind of what we want to do, is throw ourselves into the river of practice and when we find ourselves up on a bank, which we will from time to time, to try to get ourselves down in, in any which way, you know, so that we're again flowing in the right direction, flowing in the direction of happiness, flowing in the direction of ease. We might be able to notice the banks of the river as we make our way through the day, noticing where we're getting stuck, noticing where, where we are defining who we are by the experiences that we're having, noticing when we're dwelling in something, and we can just notice, oh, this is happening, instead of needing to dwell in it. Noticing when we're making up stories about a particular person that might be near us in the dining room. Noticing when we're making up stories about ourselves, about who we are. And just that these are times that we get stuck on the banks of the river, and we can let ourselves go and throw ourselves back in the river again with the confidence that we will reach the water of freedom. Remembering that effort is the effort not to attain or to become or to get anywhere or to maintain any particular state of mind or have any particular so-called special experiences. But the effort that is valued in practice, the effort that really gets us there, is the effort to be mindful, the effort to be aware, the effort to be sensitive from moment to moment with our life exactly as it is.
exactly as it is. So the next power of mind, power of heart, is that of mindfulness. Mindfulness, of course, is a non-judgmental observation. It's knowing what our experience is. It's being aware of the different subtleties of our experience. It's noticing in a very careful and receptive and sensitive way so that we can be aware of the nuances of what it is that's happening. In other words, we're looking deeply, not in any kind of a superficial way. We're allowing the mind over and over again to drop into the present moment, to really let be into the present moment, to fall into the present moment, so that there's a depth to our seeing. Mindfulness is also an acceptance of what's happening. It's an open-hearted acceptance of whatever our experience happens to be. So not judging it, not assessing, not evaluating, but allowing ourselves an unconditional open-heartedness towards whatever our experience happens to be, whether it's wonderful or dramatic or terrible or horrible or quite ordinary and mundane. Mindfulness values each moment equally. Mindfulness actually values all, values all experiences in an equal way. Mindfulness is contact and connection with our experience. It doesn't care, actually, whether our experiences are pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, because there is the valuing of all experiences in an equal way. So this is quite different than the ordinary kind of attention that we may bring to our usual lives. Our ordinary attention picks and chooses. Ordinary attention thinks, now, is this going to get me somewhere? Um, Is this going to be something I want? Is this something I have to protect myself from? Is this something I have to get rid of? Mindfulness doesn't choose in that way. It doesn't pick and choose. It simply is aware of the full array of life. And then wise action comes out of that contact. Wise action comes out of being fully connected in a non-verbal way with our life. Our motivation, oftentimes, with attentiveness, is to try to control our experience. We're attending to our experience so that we can control it in some way. In mindfulness, our motivation is not to control. Our motivation is to try to understand what's happening. So rather than the effort to control, it's the effort to be mindful so that we can understand more deeply what's actually happening. Mindfulness very much serves life. It doesn't serve any narrow, limited sense of self. Mindfulness serves something much bigger than our thoughts or our ideas about who we are, about how things are. It is there to serve life. And of course, mindfulness can only take place in the present moment. This is a, a rule. You know, I mean, we, we, we can plan to be mindful and we can regret not having been mindful, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. However, 
if we can be mindful that we're regretting, we're off the bank of the river, if we can be mindful that we've been planning to be mindful, you know, that's kind of high and dry in the bank of the river, we're off the bank of the river again. You know? I mean, there's a lot of different ways to slide down, and all of them actually involve mindfulness. If we're mindful of this tendency we have to try to accumulate, to try to get more mindfulness, not this moment, but you know, later on, tomorrow I'll be mindful all day, that kind of thing, you know? <laughs> then right away we're in the practice once again. We're unstuck. We're here. The next is samadhi, or concentration. And this is a sustaining of attentiveness, a sustaining of mindfulness. Concentration really develops, cultivates a power of mind, a strength of heart. It helps the mind to stand its ground. It helps the heart to be able to bear with the 10,000 sorrows in life and the 10,000 joys in life and the 10,000 ordinary moments in life as well. It develops an inner steadiness, an inner strength, so that we're able to be awake, to be alive with all of our life. Concentration allows for calm. It allows for tranquility. It allows for stillness and steadiness. In concentration, there is a unification a focus that occurs. We are collecting together all of the diverse energies that so often times go all over the place into this and into that, into planning and into worrying and this and that. And we bring all of the diverse energies together. And this is concentration. Concentration or samadhi is really quite important because when there is some degree of concentration, there also is some degree of fullness of heart. Now, the heart feels very good when there is concentration. It's not permanent. It's, it's transient. But it's very, very important, a sense, to have this fullness of heart because we can get the idea that happiness can be inwardly generated rather than as dependent on externals. You know, so it's very empowering, very heartening to have this sense of fullness of heart that comes out of simply doing the practice, simply seeing if we can sustain the attention from moment to moment on the breathing. Now, out of this comes this fullness of heart, this sense of fullness within. Concentration also allows for depth. It allows the mind to see deeply into itself. What I meant about concentration not being a permanent state of affairs, or this fullness of heart not being a permanent state of affairs, is that it comes and goes. But that fullness of heart is really important so that there is enough happiness to be able to see into where we're not happy. You know, enough peace so that we're able to look very deeply into areas of non-peace, and be able to stay with it, be able to, um, to, to not wobble, or to not be as afraid, to not be as intimidated by our experiences. Concentration also disentangles the mind from its addiction to thinking. 
So there is a surrender that occurs through the practice of concentration. The Buddha used the example of a candle in uh, a place where there's no wind, where the candle burns without flickering, without moving at all. It just burns in a very steady way. Sometimes that image can be quite helpful in just being with the breath, being with the body over and over again, allowing that steadiness of, of light to burn. The next is wisdom. And this is an intuitive, transformative understanding. Wisdom has to do with seeing into our true nature. Clear discernment about what brings happiness. Clear discernment about what brings suffering and what brings discontent. In wisdom, we look very deeply at what are called the kalesas, at the torments of heart, which actually the torments of heart are three um, with a lot of different offspring. But the main torments of heart are greed, hatred, and delusion. I reflect from time to time about how blunt the uh, Buddha was about the, the language that's being that's often used. You know, you can you can make it a little nicer or a little, you know, whatever, uh, palatable. But um, the Buddha actually was not interested in nice. He was actually interested in waking up in in freedom, in opening, in kindness and compassion, but not making things sound any different than the way they are. But I was reflecting on this, this bluntness. I was remembering that when I began practice in my early 20s, you know, I'd have to come up with a lot of different reasons to tell my parents why I was going away on a three-month retreat. And um, I would try a number of different ways. You know, I just would, would try from all different angles. So I remember once we were eating dinner together, and I was just about to go away for another three months. And they said, you know, could you, could you try again? Could you, could, you, could you try to tell us why you're doing this insane thing? So I, I would never do this now. But what I said was, I'm trying to let go of greed, hatred, and delusion. <laughs> and what they said was, um, you know, was hatred? You hate somebody? <laughs> you have hatred? And then they said, greed? You know, have some more spaghetti. You know, greed. <laughs> and then they thought for a moment and they said, but you know, we kind of have to agree with you about the delusion piece. <laughs> You're throwing your life away. You know. <laughs> so I wouldn't suggest, you know, using that as an explanation usually, but it, it can be quite helpful to just identify what is actually happening. You know, not, not as good or bad or right and wrong, but really as suffering and letting go of suffering, and noticing that when we're locked into wanting, there is suffering. When we're locked into longing, there is suffering. When we're locked into anger, or irritation, or annoyance, there is suffering. It's not, it's not right or wrong, it's just suffering. When we're locked into confusion or perplexity, there is suffering. And when there is the intent to see more deeply into these torments of mind, with the confidence that they can dissolve, that they can be let go of, that we can respond to these torments in a radically different way, really good practice. It is really moving us towards the sea of awakening.
Wisdom also has to do with seeing into impermanence, seeing into the implications of impermanence, noticing that if we try to hold on to any kind of conditioned phenomena, we will suffer. Maybe a little bit if we're holding on just a little bit, definitely a lot if we're holding on a lot. We also become aware of the possibility of letting go, the possibility of of untying the inner knots, the possibility of letting go of that which is oppressive and burdensome, which can be let go of. We also notice that in the experience of suffering and discontent, we may think that there's some safety to be found, and we do notice that there is no safety, there is no safe haven to be found in any kind of conditioned phenomena, that we have to look deeply, we have to go more deeply inside to find a true safety. And we also look at emptiness, we also look at who we think we are, we also look at this seemingly solid self that we think ourselves to be. When we look more deeply, we see insubstantiality. When we look more deeply, we see transparency. We begin to challenge our ideas about being a limited self. And we see that something else is occurring. Something else is happening that we can be aware of, that we can tap into. So, to look at the balance of these different powers of mind, the first one being faith and wisdom, and the second one being the balance between effort and concentration. Mindfulness we never have to worry about or be concerned about because mindfulness stands on its own, and mindfulness actually naturally balances everything. So if we're aware of what's happening, if we're aware of imbalance, mindfulness balances. But sometimes it is helpful in looking at one's practice to Notice in one's practice, during the day-to-day, in one's life, any degree of imbalance occurring. So when we look at there being more faith than wisdom, sometimes this is so, where there's more faith than there is wisdom in life. When this is so, how we notice it is because we are overly excited. There's an over-excitability about everything. And sometimes a sentimentality, you know, because there's, there's more faith than there is real wisdom. We find ourselves clinging to ideas. We find ourselves clinging to exciting concepts. Um, and we find ourselves clinging to interesting experiences without seeing their impermanence, without seeing that they come and they go. More faith than wisdom is also like something that just happened with Michael and I. We were walking down the street, and it was getting dark uh, right before the talk, or right before the sitting, before the talk. And um, the cars were coming, and they couldn't see us. And so um, we were saying, you know, we're not going to get hit. It's okay. You know, we have faith. You know, no wisdom. You know, no wisdom, because the car is not going to know that. <laughs> we can have all the faith that we want, and a, a car is going to impersonally go into us and uh, not care about our, our faith. Yeah. That's more faith than wisdom. Wisdom is to turn around and go back, which we, we did. You know, have confidence in us. <laughs> um, faith without energy means that nothing happens. 
You know, if there's faith, even if there's some wisdom, but there's no energy, there's no effort, you know, nothing happens. You know, nothing happens. It's like, like just being a, you know, a blob or something. You know? I mean, sitting there, you know, nothing happens. Now, that's better, actually, than faith with energy but without wisdom. You know, it's much better, actually. It's much safer to have energy. I'm sorry, to have faith without energy. But when you have faith with energy but without, without wisdom, that's usually bad news. Um, you know, that's when there's a real intolerance or there's a, a dangerous following of someone. We all know of situations in the world, maybe in our own lives, where we followed someone that we have great faith in um, with oh, tons of energy, you know, tons of energy. Uh, but then we find out that there wasn't enough discernment happening in our seeing. We didn't see the situation clearly enough. And so the energy was actually not such a great thing because the faith wasn't enough. When there's more wisdom than faith, which also can be true, there tends to be difficulty in living the Dharma, in living what we know. There tends to be a gap between what we know and the insights that we've had in life and how we are actually living. So that's a way to see if at times there is more wisdom than faith. We find that the ideas make sense, but they're only in our mind. They're not really lived out. They're not really expressed. They're not really communicated. Um, in relationship. They don't translate well into relationship, or they don't translate well into cooking dinner, or the millions of daily life activities that all of us are engaged in. There's some degree of shallowness or superficiality when there's more wisdom than there is faith. Sometimes this happens because of reading too much. Nothing's wrong with reading, and certainly study of the Dharma can be a really helpful thing. But I think one has to know one's nature, because study of the Dharma is not always a helpful thing. Sometimes it can really make a bigger gap, and one can get very, very disappointed because one's reading all these wonderful things, and yet one's experience is not living up to it. We're reading about awakening and enlightenment and freedom, and we're only experiencing sleepiness and restlessness and doubt and, you know, on and on and on. So it can help at times to take a break from reading so that we can kind of you know, make our way into the books so we can actually um, experience ourselves what's being spoken about or what's being, what we're reading so that we can actually be nourished by the books rather than uh, be disappointed by what we're reading. We have to sometimes just have a little bit more trust in our actual experience. If our actual experience is sleepiness or restlessness or doubt, that's fine. From the perspective of practice, it's not a problem. But if we can be aware of our actual experience, our practice is moving, it's deepening, it's developing. Whereas if we're just thinking about how things should be or where we're going to get to in some months or some years or some lifetimes, we're not really practicing. We can find ourselves trying to figure out the path or figure out the truth. You know, we can spend an awful lot of time just simply going around in circles, thinking, 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 instead of being, instead of living. 
When we look at effort in samadhi, remembering that effort offers energy and clarity, and samadhi offers calm and depth. When there's more effort than there is samadhi, there is a sense of being quite restless and agitated, waiting for something to happen, wanting to experience the fruits of practice, but actually just being quite agitated. Obsessive thinking about the past and the future, unless there is some concentration, samadhi, balancing out the effort. When there's more samadhi than there is energy, one feels quite drowsy and dazed. There's a sense of being of um, being dull, of inertia, of not enough energy. The mind feels like it's floating away. And there's this thing called sinking mind that maybe some of you have experienced when there's not enough energy and there is more concentration than energy. Um, sometimes the mind feels like it's sinking in upon itself. And it, it feels quite oppressive because there needs to be a balance of energy. There's a lack of buoyancy occurring. Now, to balance faith with wisdom, what we need is understanding. We need to simply see our tendencies, see our habits, see um, the ways that we move in life. We need to see whether there is a little bit more faith than wisdom, whether there is a little bit more of an intellectual knowledge of practice than there is a real confidence in practice. To balance samadhi and effort together, First of all, mindfulness balances them, so simply just to be mindful. But also, the walking is extremely important, extremely helpful in balancing energy with samadhi or concentration, with balancing samadhi and concentration with energy. When we walk, it's a very interesting thing. If you devote enough attention to the walking, if there's too much energy, it will come down. If there's too much sleepiness, it will come up. You might have to take this on faith. But to try it, you know, to see what happens if you really give a lot of attention to the walking meditation practice, it is a balancing agent. I see some of you nodding. I'm sure you know. It does balance out the energy. So I just suggest, really, if you're noticing an imbalance occurring, just to really make use of the walking. And to finish, just to talk a little bit about how these five connect with one another, one another, because this is the um, kind of wonderful part about it, and it's also where they, they link so beautifully together. What I was talking about is being incredibly elegant. So there has to be faith. Faith is the first of the powers of heart, and there has to be enough faith for there to be effort. If there's no faith at all, then, of course, we're not going to want to, to try. We're not going to want to turn away from our habits and patterns. We're not going to want to be present. So there has to be even just a drop of faith. It doesn't have to be a huge amount, but there has to be what I was calling that initial leap of faith over and over again so that there's enough faith to be able to summon up the effort, to be able to let go of what we know for the sake of the new. This effort is the effort to be mindful. Concentration or samadhi is sustaining that mindfulness. It's sustained attentiveness. 
And wisdom is the result of both samadhi and mindfulness. Wisdom is the natural result. This is where you get to breathe a sigh of relief. Because you don't have to worry so much about the wisdom. It comes quite naturally. If there is the faith for there to be enough effort, the effort uh, to be mindful, to notice what's happening, and then if we can sustain that mindfulness, the wisdom comes about quite effortlessly, quite easily. With faith comes the willingness to turn over and over again, whether we want to or not, towards our life. When we find those times of experiencing resistance to being in our life, to being at home with ourselves, there can be this willingness, if there's some degree of faith, to turn towards the present moment anyway, over and over again. This is instead of following the flow of instinct to cling, the flow of instinct to push away, but instead the trust of being in contact with our life exactly as it is. So this turning towards is what is known as effort. With effort, the attention is sustained, and this is what is known as concentration. With effort and concentration, there is mindfulness. Mindfulness is noticing the subtle aspects of our experience. Mindfulness and concentration is sustained noticing, and the result is wisdom. So let me finish by just using the example of the bell with these five different powers of mind, because I think it's a really good illustration. When you hear the sound of the bell, um, there has to be enough faith to listen to the sound instead of dwelling in preoccupation. You know, probably some interesting thing is going on right now, some fantasy or some, something you think you're going to do when you get home or you know, something is happening. I'm, I'm sure something is happening. <laughs> I'm guaranteed something is happening. So the faith is to let go of whatever it is that's happening for the sake of the present moment, which in a moment or two will be the bell. Okay? So the faith to turn towards the present moment, that's effort. So that's the effort. So the effort piece is totally down if you're willing to let go of preoccupation and be alive with the sound of the bell in the present moment. And then the effort is to notice the subtleties, just to be aware of the subtleties of the sound of the bell, you know, to see if you can hear overtones or undertones or you know, just, just be very awake and sensitive and receptive and alive to the sound itself. And then, that's not enough, sustain the attention. See if you can notice from moment to moment the sound of the bell. And if you notice quite carefully, you will notice that you're with the sound, you're away. You know, you're with the sound, you're away. So it's over and over again summoning up that effort to be with the sound once again. And you will notice yourself going away. But to sustain the attention, that's what you want to do. So bringing the mind back over and over again and sustaining the attention on the sound. And then, maybe I'll do it and then we'll talk about the natural result. Okay, so practicing all powers of heart now.
removal of impermanence? Yes? Good. Wisdom. Okay. So, let me just um, end with just a couple of words of the Buddha. Actually, let me end with um, a few more words of um, Ajahn Chah. The Buddha taught that with things that come about of their own, once you have done your work, you can leave the results to nature, to the power of your accumulated karma. Yet your exertion of effort should not cease. Whether the fruit of wisdom comes quickly or slowly, you cannot force it, just as you cannot force the growth of the tree you have planted. The tree has its own pace. Your job is to dig a hole, water and fertilize it, and protect it from insects. That much is your affair, a matter of faith. But the way the tree grows is up to the tree. If you practice like this, you can be sure all will be well, and your plant will grow. Thus, you must understand the difference between your work and the plant's work. Leave the plant's business to the plant, and be responsible for your own. If the mind does not know what it needs to do, it will try to force the plant to grow and flower and give fruit in one day. This is wrong view, a major cause of suffering. Just practice in the right direction and leave the rest to your karma. Then, whether it takes one or one hundred or one thousand lifetimes, your practice will be at peace. Okay, let's just sit for a moment or two. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.